From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, March 20th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Coming up, a wave of bombings rattles Iraq on the ninth anniversary of the U.S.-led invasion. Also, a top general briefs Congress on how the war in Afghanistan is going. And a young anti-war veteran talks about the ghosts of Vietnam. Anytime someone brought up anti-war protests, if it were ever a factor in any conversation, a lot of my teachers would explain that as a way, as a byproduct of LSD usage and a crazy generation. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. There was no fanfare today to mark the ninth anniversary of the start of the Iraq War. That conflict officially ended for the U.S. late last year, when the last American soldiers left Iraq. But there was a brutal reminder today of the ongoing dangers there. A series of apparently coordinated explosions shook eight Iraqi cities, killing more than 45 people. From Baghdad to Fallujah to Kirkuk, rescuers scrambled to help the many wounded after the blasts. The bombings came at a delicate moment for the Iraqi government. It's getting ready to host an Arab League summit next week for the first time in decades. And Iraqi leaders are eager to show that they can provide adequate security now that U.S. troops are no longer in the country. Reporter Sahar Issa of the McClatchy News Service is in Baghdad now. Sahar, we're seeing this wave of bombings in eight different cities. Who's being targeted and why? Generally, security forces are being targeted, but some of these attacks just took place in the middle of nowhere, in main thoroughfares, in small streets, uh, seemingly to target no one but civilians. And the message behind the attacks, especially right now, as we said, just one week before an Arab League summit is scheduled to take place in Baghdad, is what? The obvious message would be to undermine uh, the Iraqi government's ability to provide security for the summit as it cannot actually provide security for the Iraqi people. But uh, there are uh, very many uh, political behind-the-scene factors as well. Behind-the-scene factors, and I wonder if one of them is the fact that today is the ninth anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. That could very well be it, Lisa, yes. And I think that insurgents want to remind people that although nine years have passed, Everything in Iraqi politics today stemmed from an occupation of the country. The fact that the explosions are continuing now in such large numbers, what's the potential that this will derail the Arab League summit next week? The Iraqi government has taken this into consideration, I believe, because they have given two days holiday. And there is a high possibility, in fact, it is expected that a curfew will be announced. In which case, uh, if people want to uh, arrange uh, bombings and things, of course, it's going to be very difficult. 
but uh, I don't believe it will be derailed. I believe that the summit will take place. The Iraqi government looks to the summit to give it legitimacy in the Arab world. I doubt very much that it is going to let this opportunity slip between its fingers. Even if it has to embrace this opportunity and hold the summit against a backdrop of bombings? They will want to keep it. It remains for the guests to decide whether they want to come to the site of bombings or not. Thank you for speaking with us, reporter Sahar Issa of the McClatchy News Service in Baghdad, talking to us about the wave of bombings across Iraq today on the verge of next week's Arab League summit in the Iraqi capital. Nice to speak with you. You are most welcome. The bombings today also reached deep into northern Iraq. Two car bombs hit a police station in the northern city of Kirkuk. There was another attack in Mosul. The BBC's Rami Rahim is in Erbil, also in northern Iraq. The entire country almost has been targeted, with one single exception, which is the semi-autonomous region of Iraqi Kurdistan. Now, that region is in the north of the country, and it's been enjoying its autonomy for, for a while. It's had its own security forces, even while Saddam was still in power. This was enforced by a no-fly zone, so Saddam could not come in here. And this meant that they had time to build their security forces, and they had time to build a stable region in, in Iraq. Now, there are certain parts of northern Iraq which do not lie within this semi-autonomous region, uh, namely Kirkuk and Mosul, which did suffer from this latest wave of attacks. So while there are concerns about what will happen in terms of security and safety throughout much of Iraq as the Americans have left, what about in northern Iraq? Is it a concern there as well? Not really at the moment. It's not. The concern is is more in, in Iraq itself, especially in Baghdad, which is supposed to host this very important meeting. Iraq has very high hopes for this meeting. It wants to to showcase supposedly the, the stability, the newfound stability of Iraq, and it wants to say to the world, we are back on the on the regional stage and on the international stage, and we can host really big international events in Baghdad. But here in, in the semi-autonomous region of Kurdistan, things are quite uh, stable, at least on the security side. Politically, there's a lot of tension between Erbil and Baghdad, between the regional government here and the central government in Baghdad. Uh, and that's, um, that's about how to share the oil wealth, for example, and uh, other legislative issues. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, the BBC's Rami Rahim in Erbil in northern Iraq. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. U.S. troops are no longer engaged in combat in Iraq, but they are in Afghanistan. And that war was the subject of a hearing today on Capitol Hill. Our troops know the difference that they're making every day. They know it. And the enemy feels it every day. That's the top American commander in Afghanistan, Marine General John Allen, testifying before the House Armed Services Committee. We remain on track to ensure that Afghanistan will no longer be a safe haven for al-Qaeda and will no longer be terrorized by the Taliban. Allen told lawmakers that the U.S.-led coalition is on course to meet another goal, and that is to hand over the lead security role to Afghan government forces by December of 2014. But he acknowledged the turmoil in the country recently. Allen referred to the incident in which copies of the Muslim holy book, the Quran, were burned, or as he put it, mishandled by U.S. troops. And that mishandling, he said, motivated members of the Afghan security forces to turn on international forces. And just as tragic... We're investigating what appears to be the murder of 16 innocent Afghan civilians at the hand of a U.S. service member. Now, each of these events is heart-wrenching, 
And my thoughts and my prayers go out to all of those affected by this violence, coalition and Afghan alike. In the wake of those incidents, some in Congress have been calling for a faster U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The committee's ranking member, Representative Adam Smith of Washington, alluded to that today. We need to get to the point where we turn this back over to the Afghan people as soon as we responsibly can. We want our troops home. We want the Afghan people back in charge of their own security, back in charge of their own government. That's Congressman Adam Smith. But General Allen said today that there won't be an accelerated U.S. pullout from Afghanistan. The existing timetable does call for an ongoing gradual reduction in American troop numbers there. Veterans returning from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have come home to a nation that is largely appreciative of their efforts. Well, that's not how it was for Vietnam vets. At least that's not how we remember their homecoming. Arun Roth of our partner program Frontline has more on that. The homecoming of the last large generation of American soldiers at the end of the Vietnam War has been deeply embedded in our popular culture. As the story goes, vets returned to face the contempt of hippie protesters who spat on them. Sylvester Stallone delivered the best description in the first Rambo movie, First Blood. And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they to protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. That's clearly something of Hollywood. Jerry Lemke is a Vietnam vet and the author of The Spitting Image, Myth, Memory, and the Legacy of Vietnam. He says Rambo is the one who doesn't know what he's yelling about. Nothing, nothing like that ever happened that I'm aware of. A protesters meeting soldiers coming home from the war at Gateside or at the gate of the airport. There probably were some ugly incidents, but Rambo's version, repeated in unverified news accounts over the years, stuck. Until John Kerry got swift-boated, most Americans had pretty much forgotten the prominent role Vietnam vets played in the anti-war movement, which largely embraced them. One of the clues to that for me is that these same stories, spitting stories literally, appear in other lost war cultures, after other lost wars. Whether it's Germany after World War I or France after its defeat in Southeast Asia, the stories pop up. And for some reason, it's almost always a woman doing the spitting. Vietnam is the most mythologized war in American history because it was a lost war. And so the American people are constantly reworking the outcome of that war. The new mythology left the anti-war movement with a serious image problem. The image that protesters didn't just hate war, they hated soldiers. Jerry Lemke believes that image, reinforced by popular culture in the news media, served to stigmatize the movement and push it out of the mainstream. Matt Southworth was 19 when he deployed to Iraq in 2004. Here's what he heard about Vietnam-era protests in high school. Anytime someone brought up anti-war protests, if it were ever a factor in any conversation, a lot of my teachers would explain that as a way, as a byproduct of LSD usage and a crazy generation. It was never something that in my youth was given credence. It was never something that was given credibility. So to me, I didn't even realize there was an anti-war movement when I signed up. Southworth began to have doubts about Iraq during his deployment and became involved with the anti-war movement after his discharge. Alejandro Villatoro was also unaware that there were protests when he served in the invasion of Iraq in 2003. He started to have doubts when no WMDs were found and the war was rebranded. Once we started hearing within the media the term Iraq liberation or Iraqi freedom, for the most part we were all pretty upset. 
we knew that that was not our mission. Our mission was to disarm Iraq, not liberate Iraq. Viatoro's and Southworth's conversion stories are clearly unusual. 2.3 million Americans have served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and only the tiniest minority of them were turned into activists. One obvious factor is the post-Vietnam transformation to a self-selecting all-volunteer armed forces. Not many pacifists sign up to be soldiers. Still, it's quite a turnaround from the 60s and 70s when Vietnam Veterans Against the War was a high-profile part of a very robust anti-war movement. Today, you can't even find a website for Afghanistan Veterans Against the War. It exists only as a committee within Iraq Veterans Against the War, which carries on even as that war has ended. To say it's been discouraging would be the understatement of my life. Oh boy, it's been tough. Frank Corcoran served in the Marine Corps in Vietnam in 1968 and has been involved in anti-war and humanitarian activities ever since. Like Southworth and Viatoro, he was converted by his combat experiences, but he says he can understand why most other vets don't make that leap. Large numbers of vets don't come home from war and go to an anti-war movement. It's too hard to do. It's too big of a leap. I think it's dangerous, dangerous ground emotionally. You're saying what I just did was wrong. Alejandro Viatoro knows that emotional ground well. It was a tough moment to accept the facts of what led to the war in Iraq, what led to the invasion. I felt betrayed. I grew into depression because I took part of an illegal war. Alejandro's story reveals a complexity that defies stereotypes or Hollywood formulas. He worked through his depression by studying and reading extensively about politics and world history. He says he's found his voice since becoming involved with the Rock Veterans Against the War in 2007. Yet he continued to serve. Alejandro was promoted to sergeant, putting in two more tours in Iraq and a recent tour in Afghanistan. He's still active in the reserves. For The World, I'm Arun Roth. Last week, we produced a special edition of The World focused entirely on veterans returning from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. You can hear our in-depth coverage anytime. Just go to theworld.org slash return. The consequences of getting energy for America from Canada still to come on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Female circumcision is still a practice in many places, from Africa to Indonesia. The World Health Organization and human rights groups have campaigned to stop the custom, which some call female genital mutilation. Yet in countries where the practice continues, merely talking about it can get you into big trouble. That's what happened recently to a journalist in the West African nation of Liberia. Reporter Gina Moore has her story. I came to Liberia to work with a newspaper reporter named May Azongo in the capital city, Monrovia. We were going to do a story about midwives, but our plans got seriously disrupted. Just before I arrived, Zongo had been working on an article about female circumcision, which is practiced in much of rural Liberia. Zongo says she found a woman to talk to her about what she'd experienced at age 13. Four women held her down and a woman cut her. And she said he used, I think, three knives to cut a whole lot of girls. And she said when they cut them, they don't use any form of anesthesia. And it hurt. She said it hurts so much. Stories like this are familiar to Western ears, but here in Liberia, 
writing about the topic is still sensitive, and it's almost unheard of for a woman to talk in such detail about what happened to her. In Liberia, genital cutting is an initiation into a secret society called Sande. Girls who join take an oath never to talk about the group or its rituals. Azonga wanted to shed light on the practice. Why should you carry a woman through that? Why should you decide for another person? Grabbing her and torturing her and cutting her is a violation of her right. Azongo's newspaper, called Front Page Africa, put her investigation on the cover on International Women's Day. The publisher, Rodney Sia, says his paper is known for investigative stories that others won't touch. Nobody would dare put a women's circumcision story on the front page, but we can do it. The newspaper expected a backlash, but they were unprepared for how bad it would get. Women reacted so angrily that Azongo's editor called her back from the rural village where we were interviewing midwives, and we canceled our plans for other rural reporting. Women were threatening Azongo. They said that if they caught her, they'd circumcise her. They would take me to the sandy bush and have me cut, and when I'm cut, I won't be able to talk. She won't be able to talk because anyone who is cut takes an oath before the cutting. The oath is that if you ever speak of the ritual, you'll be killed. The day after the article ran, Azongo heard that a powerful woman inside the Liberian government looked for her at her office. The woman said, we told her to stay away from this story. A few days later, the threats got even closer. Azongo's editor, Wada Williams, met a tenant in Azongo's house. She said, it shouldn't have been published here. We thought it was going to be published outside, but you cannot degrade, you know, our tradition and publish it here. That's an insult to us. Then the woman told Williams that if Azongo traveled to rural Liberia again, she'd disappear. Azongo went into hiding the day the story ran, almost two weeks ago. She hasn't slept at home or been to her office since. When I decided to do a story about what happened to her, I chose not to seek out the women who were threatening her. Azongo had been seen working with me all around Monrovia and in the very village where she reported the circumcision story. I feared that if I approached the women threatening her, they could follow me to get to her. But I did sit in on Azongo's meeting with the police when she filed a statement, the first stage in a formal criminal investigation. I listened as the officers interviewed her to confirm that these were menacing threats and not simply the careless words of angry readers. All of this, Azongo thinks, is less about what she said and more about who she is. If it was a white woman or a foreign journalist doing it, nobody would have a problem with that person. But because I'm a Liberian and I live in Liberia, I should know my, my rule. I should know my line of demarcation. Zongo says she expects that things will eventually calm down and she'll get to go home. And then, when the time is right, she wants to do a follow-up story. For The World, I'm Gina Moore, Monrovia, Liberia. Gina Moore went to Liberia on a project for the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Airplanes have long been one of the few places where our constant use of electronic gadgets is limited. We're always, as passengers, instructed to turn off all electronic devices during taxiing, takeoff, and landing. But the Federal Aviation Administration now says it's open to reviewing that policy. Kevin Hyatt is the chief operating officer of the Flight Safety Foundation, which is supported by the airline industry. He's now in Alexandria, Virginia. Kevin, remind us first why we have to snap off our electronics devices on takeoffs and landings. 
Well, it's absolute paramount for the uh, safety of a flight. Uh, two reasons. One is the fact that there still is uncertainty as to what type of interference those devices may have with the instruments on the aircraft. And the second part is the fact that the passenger really does need to be aware of the conditions of flight. And if something were to uh, unfortunately happen, such as a rejected takeoff or something like that, they need to be alert and paying attention to what the flight attendants might tell them. Okay, so considering that more and more people, they say something like one out of every 12 passengers now aboard a plane is using an electronic device, you guys, or I guess the FAA, has to test out every new incarnation to see whether or not it's going to be able to stand the test. And this is going to be costly. Tell us what the procedure would be. Oh, it would be very costly, and it'd be very time-consuming also. And the procedure, for example, is just use your iPad. You've got iPad version number one. It has to be researched as to exactly what type of application it has installed on it, and then will it operate on the numerous different aircraft models in the entire world fleet. Can you explain to us then, if there's so much concern, why pilots on certain airlines, and in particular right now it's American, uh, Alaska, and United, are allowed to use iPads in the cockpit at least before they reach 10,000 feet altitude? Well, number one is that each one of those air carriers went through an extensive amount of testing with a particular model of the iPad. And then on that iPad was loaded only those items that were necessary to provide the functions that the pilot needs. Navigation charts, manuals, and checklists. You mean so they can go paperless? That is correct. The other part is that, again, that iPad is a specific iPad for a specific purpose. When a passenger gets on the airplane with their iPad, for example, they may have dozens and dozens of different apps located on it. And it's very difficult to know exactly what each one of those apps might do in terms of interference. How come there's so much pressure on the airlines to allow the use of certain electronic devices? Well, it's a customer service issue, and it's also the fact that the traveling public is relatively savvy, and therefore the question continually comes up as to why can't we? And the airlines and the FAA are looking at maybe a possibility of a modification of that rule. And Kevin, when you're flying, what do you have in front of you? Well, I have my handheld newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) They do exist, don't they? Paper paper. They're still out there, yes. A lot of times I'll pick up a paper and, and read it fairly quickly. Nice to talk to you. Kevin Hyatt with the Flight Safety Foundation, former pilot for Delta. Thanks again. Thanks, Lisa. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, in the ruins of Somalia, the reopening of a national theater offers a rare distraction from violence. 2,000 people dressed up the best dress they can get, smiling themselves in the middle of this ruin. This was a day to remember. That story and more coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston, starting up this half of our program with a question. What country is the biggest exporter of energy to the United States? And nope, this is not our geo-quiz. Well, if you guess Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, you're way off. America's number one source of imported energy is our neighbor to the north, Canada. In recent years, Canada has quietly become an energy superpower, and that's been great for the country's economy, but some say not so good for its environment. Brian Mann of North Country Public Radio has our report. A few years ago, I traveled to far northern Quebec, paddling the wild Rupert River, where I spotted a gray wolf prowling the banks. This is the Canada most Americans think of. Empty, pristine, and incredibly beautiful. But these days, Americans are getting to know another Canada. Last fall, thousands of protesters marched in Washington, demanding that President Obama reject plans for a pipeline that would link oil fields in Canada to refineries in the U.S. Hundreds of people were arrested, including climate change activist Bill McKibben. These tar sands in Canada are a big deal. They're the second biggest pool of carbon on Earth. If you burn them heavily, then it doesn't matter what else you do. It's essentially game over for the climate. The Keystone Pipeline has since become one of the hottest political footballs in Washington. And the debate has illuminated Canada's little-known role as a major energy exporter. Keystone or no Keystone, the truth is Americans are already drinking deep from Canadian oil. So that right now we're putting our hands on the actual pipeline, and yep. this is the oil flowing through right here. Yes, sir. This is a high-tech pump station in Steel City, Nebraska. It looks like a spaceship that's landed smack in the middle of the American prairie. The existing pipeline now will move about 570,000 barrels a day. Jim Krause shows me around. He works for TransCanada, the company that wants to build the Keystone Project. It turns out TransCanada already operates a massive pipeline grid that stretches from Alberta to Oklahoma. All the station functions, the pipeline is operated out of our control center in uh, Calgary. This lonely outpost, unmanned most of the year, is a symbol of a North American energy market that's become deeply intertwined. Canada is now the largest single foreign supplier of oil to the U.S., delivering nearly twice as much each year as Saudi Arabia. 90% of natural gas imports to the U.S. are also piped from Canada. And in the Northeast, one out of every six homes and businesses now runs on Canadian electricity, and there's more on its way. The great hydro and wind resources that exist in Canada today need markets. Donald Jessam is head of a Toronto-based company called TDI that's developing a new $2 billion cable that will feed electricity from Quebec directly to New York City. A thousand megawatts is approximately enough energy for a million homes, so it's a fairly significant injection into the New York market. Industry groups in Canada say it's a perfect fit. Their country's huge energy resources will fuel America's huge energy demand. And they've been airing ads like this one, putting a positive spin on the oil sands by arguing that Canadian energy will help free the U.S. from reliance on countries in the Middle East. Why are we paying their bills and funding their oppression? Today, there's a better way. Ethical oil from Canada's oil sands. Ethical oil. A choice For Canadians, meanwhile, the energy boom has meant new prosperity. Canada was the first G8 country to emerge from the global recession. A lot of economists say energy exports fueled the recovery. 
But critics say the environmental costs have been staggering. In 2009, a year after I paddled that wild northern river in Canada, a government agency diverted much of its water, siphoning it away into a massive man-made complex of reservoirs. The Rupert is drastically changed, a traditional river that's been, you know, paddled for hundreds and hundreds of years by the Cree. From a purist wilderness standpoint, it definitely makes me sad to see it all happen. Phil Royce is a geologist at St. Lawrence University in New York. He says a chunk of Quebec the size of Connecticut has been industrialized. Rivers have been dewatered. Wolf and caribou habitat is crisscrossed by roads and power lines with more big dams in the works. The next section, the phase three that they're looking at in terms of the little whale, uh, the great whale, and the Nastapoka are some of the most beautiful, pristine rivers that I've ever paddled. Others share those concerns. Elizabeth May, head of Canada's Green Party, says the direct damage from tar sands oil development in western Canada is even more troubling. Some of the largest man-made structures in the world are the dams that hold the thousands of square kilometers of toxic water in tailing ponds, and those tailing ponds are leaching into the Athabasca River. The whole project is an abomination. May acknowledges that the energy boom has meant jobs and tax revenues. She says it's inevitable that her country's vast resources will be developed over time. But May thinks Canada's accelerating energy gold rush is forcing people here to look in the mirror, questioning their cherished image as environmental leaders. We've never had a record that equaled our reputation. We've been coasting for years basically on natural beauty and on a time when we were in the lead. A decade ago, Canada championed efforts to protect global biodiversity and curb greenhouse gas pollution. But late last year, Prime Minister Stephen Harper withdrew Canada from the Kyoto Climate Treaty. He's pledged to keep pushing Washington to open the border to even more oil, electricity, and natural gas from the north. For The World, I'm Brian Mann. Tomorrow, we take a look at the debate over a new hydroelectric project that would send power from remote eastern Canada to the U.S., Meanwhile, why don't you weigh in? Should the U.S. import even more energy from Canada? And are there better options? You can join the discussion with the world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, at theworld.org. A leaked tape is adding more fuel to the fire of China's biggest political scandal in years. This tape, which ended up on the web, appears to shed more light on the firing of a prominent Communist Party leader last week. His name is Boishi Lai, and he was the party chief in the south-central city of Chongqing. The world's Beijing correspondent Mary Kay Magstead has the details. Mary Kay, why is this scandal so potentially explosive? Well, for one thing, it affects the very top circle of leadership. You just don't usually hear about what's going on in terms of internal leadership struggles. And this has burst into public view. And that's been highly embarrassing to the party. You know, in in very short form, what happened was that Boshilai had been expected to step into one of the top nine leadership positions in China come the autumn. He's also the son of one of the top leaders of Mao Zedong's generation. He was considered always sort of an anointed one. Uh, and he had a strike card against crime campaign where he had brought in a deputy mayor, Wang Lijun, who had, was the former police chief. And according to this leaked tape, Wang Lijun informed Bo Lai that there were some cases related to Bo Lai's own family members. According to this tape, Bo was furious and uh, tried to act against Wang Lijun, who then fled to the U.S. consulate on February 6th. 
And this by itself, this has never happened in the past you know, 60 years of Communist Party rule, that someone at that level went to seek political asylum at a U.S. consulate or embassy. So this caught the attention of President Hu Jintao, who got involved and said, what's going on? Sent police cars down to Chengdu to try to get Wang Lijun back. The central government got him, is now investigating the case. And in that sense, it's almost a Shakespearean drama unfolding here in China, something that uh, the Chinese public rarely sees. A Shakespearean drama with tape. And as you say, the Chinese public rarely sees it. But in this case, uh, it became a darling of the social media. Tell us about that tape. It's a little bit unclear what we're hearing here. Right. So the tape sounds like it may have been made surreptitiously. The officials saying what we need to do is regain control over the message. We need to make sure that correct public opinion uh, is directed, that media organizations comply with propaganda principles, that the internet is monitored and controlled, and that anything that might be embarrassing to us is blocked and deleted. Which is kind of interesting since it wasn't blocked and deleted. This basically went viral. Right, because at this point you've got 500 million Chinese online and a a growing number of them know how to get around government censors. So even when the government tries these days to control information, it's finding it increasingly difficult to do so. If this same thing had happened even two years ago, it wouldn't get the same buzz as it has now. This uh, bring in Washington here for a bit because it seems to be involved on two levels. Uh, Personally, with this man, Mr. Wong, who, who blew the whistle and then sought refuge at the U.S. consulate in China. Then on a mega level, the incident, as you've been saying, Mary Kay, sheds light on the direction, different directions of the Chinese government. Well, it was an interesting moment in the China-U.S. relationship. Wang Lijun in the past has been, you know, sort of stridently pro-communist party and anti-capitalism and anti-Western liberalism. And yet when uh, it came to the crunch, he fled to the U.S. consulate, thinking that might be the safest place for him. How did the U.S. government respond or react to this at that particular moment? He asked for political asylum, according to this leaked tape. And it was at a moment when Vice President Xi Jinping was about to go to the United States. Wang Lijun is not a political dissident in the sense of a human rights activist or someone who is pushing for democracy within China. He's no angel himself. He's been known to crack down quite hard within Chongqing. And I think the U.S. government weighed its options and what was in its long-term interests and decided that Wang Lijun should be turned over to the central government and they should deal with him as they would. Uh, Probably in the long term, that um, was somewhat reassuring to the Chinese government that the U.S. government is not against China, that it will act um, pragmatically and reasonably uh, in a situation like this. All right. The world's Mary Kay Magstead in Beijing. Thanks a lot, Mary Kay. Thank you, Lisa. To South Korea now, where cultural homogeneity has long been a source of pride, but the country is undergoing a demographic shift. Over the past decade, hundreds of thousands of Korean men have married women from Vietnam, Cambodia, and other Asian countries, and the number of children born to these couples is on the rise. But there's concern that these culturally mixed kids may have trouble fitting into a society that embraces sameness. Jason Struther has more from Seoul. Inkjargar Kishik Bakhtar is home from work, and her two young sons are ready to play. She's from Mongolia, but her boys were born here, like their father. The kids have Korean names and don't really speak Mongolian, but she says she hopes they won't forget their roots. 
I always remind my sons that they're also Mongolian, and they should be proud to be Mongolian. Mixed families like this are increasingly common in South Korea. Hong Impyo heads the Seoul Multicultural Family Clinic. Multicultural families are really helping out Korea's low birth rate, he says. By 2050, their children will make up 10 percent of the population. These children will be the next generation of the nation. Earlier this month, Seoul opened its first publicly funded school for multicultural children. In this Korean as a second language class, students take turns introducing themselves. 18-year-old Liang Man-ni moved here from China in 2009 with her Korean mother and Chinese father. She says she likes the Dasam school a lot, and she's made friends with students from Japan, Hong Kong and Vietnam. So far, Dasam has 48 students who were raised abroad. But soon, school administrators say they expect to enroll children who've grown up entirely in Korea. Many kids from multicultural families aren't attending school at all. A recent survey found that around 30 percent of these children stay home with their foreign mothers. Many of them don't learn to speak Korean proficiently. And that has the South Korean government worried, says Chung Chin Sung. She's a sociologist at Seoul National University. Chung says she doesn't want to see these kids fall through the cracks, even if it means educating them in separate schools. There are children who cannot well adjust to a normal school. Uh, Without any help, they cannot be prepared to get into a a society. So this kind of school, I I think, can be a less chance for those children. Many Korean kids bully their multicultural classmates, says Save the Children's Kim Hee-kyung. She says they're teased about the way they look or talk, And Kim says Korean kids pick up stereotypes from their parents about children with Southeast Asian mothers, for instance. Children from Southeast Asia are less smart than them or poor. So that's why they assume that they are inferior to them. Kim says isolating these kids in their own school isn't going to reduce prejudice. Last year, Save the Children launched an anti-discrimination pilot program in a few Seoul elementary schools. Students acted in role-playing games that had them pretend to be kids from non-traditional families. Nine-year-old Cha Eun-sol tells me she's learned that she shouldn't tease kids with parents from other countries. She says she and some of her classmates have made friends with a boy from a multicultural family, and they're helping him by teaching him Korean. For The World, I'm Jason Struther in Seoul. For our GeoQuiz today, we're looking for an African city. It's located on Somalia's long Indian Ocean coastline. It's the capital of the war-ravaged country, and it's the home of Somalia's National Theater. That theater's been shut down for more than 20 years now through two decades of civil war. Some of the fighting continues, but the theater reopened anyway this week, despite a mortar attack by militants earlier in the day. Despite of that attack, people came out the best dress they can get and went to the theater. They said that life has to go on and we have to enjoy the night. Pretty brave audience was treated to plays, Somali art exhibits, and music. 
many folks hope the theater in the Somali capital will now stay open. We're going to hear from one of the organizers in just a bit. First, though, you need to come up with the name of Somalia's capital. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The National Theater of Somalia has reopened more than 20 years after it closed its doors. Opening day yesterday featured art exhibits, concerts, and plays, all a welcome break from the violence that continues to mar daily life in the capital, Mogadishu. Mogadishu is the answer to our geo-quiz today. Jabril Ibrahim Abdullah is one of the theater's organizers, proud to be at the opening. Well, the opening evening here in Mogadishu was uh, extremely powerful, uh, very emotional, where for the first time in 21 years, people came out and went to the theater. Many listeners might see this as a normal routine, but here in Mogadishu, going out and going to the theater is a lifetime experience because a majority of city people don't go out in the night. And they certainly haven't over the past 21 years. What was the opening day performance? The opening day performance was quite impressive. Somali a national band who are quite old because the 20 years music and artists has been under threat. As a matter of fact, you have a large number of people attending yesterday whose age is under 30 years old. And by the fact is that there is something called National Theater was a miracle to them because they have never seen, never knew anything just like this. So coming to the theater was an adventure for them. That's amazing because there's such a, a long and strong literary tradition and you're saying a, a new generation of Somalis was just discovering it this week. Well, yes, you're right. The Somali artists who are the most dynamic, creative artists have never been able to draw anything for the last 20 years. And one time you have a warlords who see the artists as a threat to their power structure. And then later on you have a very radical religious group who actually call anyone who draw any picture to be assassinated or killed. So the other element was exhibition of artwork. And this was an opportunity for them to showcase what they have missed and the talent they have. So they show pictures or posters that depicting the current dynamics of Somalia. And the second element was a play, a love story. To talk about love in the middle of Mogadishu was an amazing story because we often talk about killings, destruction. As a matter of fact, the night before, a couple of Somali were killed as a result of motor attack. Despite of that attack, they said that in the middle of theater that life has to go on and we have to enjoy the night. How many people did show up at the theater? Probably is around between 1,500 to 2,000. Wow. Quite amazing. As a matter of fact, 2,000 people dressed up the best dress they can get, smiling themselves and show up to the theater in the middle of this ruin. That was what catch my eye. This was a day to remember. Very nice to talk to you, Jabril Ibrahim Abdullah. He helped organize the reopening of the National Theater in Somalia this week. Good luck. Thank you. And finally today, we focus on French Guiana. The French territory in South America will be in the news later on this week. The European Space Agency is due to launch a rocket from there. It's going to carry a cargo shipment with food, water, and oxygen to the International Space Station. Most people would consider French Guiana a remote corner of the world, but there is a lot more happening there than rocket launches. The territory is home to an exciting local music scene. And as Marlon Bishop reports, one young local singer there is stirring things up. Near the town of Kourou, French Guiana, rocket ships regularly blast off to outer space. France moved its space program to the northern coast of South America in the 60s to promote economic development in the territory. 
Today, the Guiana Space Center serves as the European Union's spaceport and employs thousands of scientists and engineers. But drive a few hours west and the scene changes dramatically. Here on the border with Suriname, motorized canoes zip up and down the Moroni River, delivering fuel and supplies to bankside villages. French Guiana has been a department of France since 1946, but for many here, there is still a king, or at least a prince. My name is Prince Coloni, a singer from the Maroni River. 28-year-old Prince Coloni belongs to the Bushi Nenge people who live along the river. They're the descendants of enslaved Africans who escaped the sugar plantations to the safety of the rainforest centuries ago. Coloni was born on the Surinamese side of the Maroni and spent his youth working on a boat, transporting gold up and down the river. As a teenager, he started a popular band that performed aleke, the traditional party music of the Bushinenge, played with just voice and drum. Then, while living in Holland for several years, he discovered reggae music. While still in Holland, Coloni recorded several reggae albums in his native Juca language. When he returned home, he was already a star. Just ask little Gary, fellow reggae singer. If you go in this river, every house that you go, you must hear a Prince Colony. You know, that's why they call him Prince. He's one of the warriors that living up the river. Colony uses his music as a platform to address issues facing the community. One of his central topics is environmentalism. Protect the nature, make coffee one the nation. Men lives from nature, prepare for the future. It makes a lot of sense to talk about nature in French Guiana because there's a lot of it. The territory is roughly the size of Indiana, but has a population of just 200,000. The vast majority of the land is untamed wilderness. But Coloni says the jungles and rivers of French Guiana are in trouble. There is just one kind of work, it's gold. So it's a lot of pollution in the forest. That's because prospectors use mercury to capture small particles of gold and then dump the dangerous waste into the river. Coloni hopes to convince his people to become better stewards of the Moroni. I respect the nature because many things I can see, people, they can live only from the nature. But if you destroy and pollute everywhere, you cannot do anything. One trend that worries Coloni is the effect of French Guiana's rapid modernization on his culture. Television arrived just 15 years ago, and many young people in the villages now have smartphones and Twitter accounts. American hip-hop and Jamaican dancehall are their music styles of choice. The young of today, they are more in the high level, like uh, like bling-bling things, stuff like that. So this, I think, is a problem right now in the community. When you see the way they're they watching things on the telephone all day because internet is free, stuff like that. In order to get young people interested in their culture again, Coloni continues to perform traditional aleke as well as his reggae. He says it's a matter of education. Coloni only attended four years of school as a child, and he says he received much of his real education by listening to music. Now he wants to use his music to help school future generations. Coloni accuses the French government of failing to provide opportunities for his people. Most recently, he has moved from his South American home to France, 
where he believes that he can most effectively get exposure for his music and advocate for the Bushinenge cause. For The World, I'm Marlon Bishop. That's going to do it for us today. Hope you come back tomorrow. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.